Welcome to Season 4 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders every week to help you navigate the economic and investing landscape. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for being back with us for a brand new Farcast this week. Terrific Farcast here on October the 16th, 2020. We have a wonderful lineup for you this morning as we look at Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Kenny Polcari joins us in the first segment. Dan Mahaffey explaining what's going on in politics. I don't know. He's going to, if anybody can, I guess Dan can. And then, uh, interesting, really fascinating, we're going to a Washington insider, Daryl Owen, who's a lawyer, lobbyist, spent a long time on Capitol Hill going to explain to us the implications of the Amy Coney Barrett nomination hearing. And looks like we're going to have a confirmation. We'll see what uh, Daryl has to say. What does that mean for the court? What does it mean for the makeup of the court? What's it going to mean for future decisions? And if we get a Joe Biden as president, what's that going to mean uh, for this stacking of the court? which I think just means you can add as many justices as you want to. But first, we go to Wall Street and our very dear friend, the famous Kenny Polcari, the voice of the New York Stock Exchange for many years. <laughs> hey, Kenny, welcome back. How are you, Michael? Thanks for having me. I'm great. And I forgot to mention you're much older than I am, but, you know, <laughs> what have we figured out it is? It's uh, Yeah, it's about three weeks. That's yeah, about all it is. Much two older. weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's sounds like shorter when I ask you. You're gonna have a you're gonna have a very interesting show today. Your last test is gonna be interesting about the uh, the Supreme Court and stack in the corner, pack in the corner, however you want to do it. Because, like you said, what's it mean? Okay, the Democrats want to try to do it this time when the Republicans retake control again. What are they gonna stack it with another four people? At what point does this ridiculousness stop? You know what I mean? Exactly, uh, and. You know, uh, the other thing about Daryl is he's he's a pretty good constitutional scholar. He's he, he Daryl was commenting on things like Kenny, if on uh, inauguration day, January twentieth, I think twenty second, twentieth, twentieth, yeah, we don't have a decided uh, a president at that point. If we don't have a clear choice, what happens in the line of succession? Yeah, uh, will the House actually be seated? Is, is one question. If you can't get a clear decision on the presidency because of the write-in ballots, you might not have the necessary votes in place in the House of Representatives. So it would not be Nancy Pelosi. It would skip to the president pro tem of the Senate who would become the president, and that's Chuck Grassley. Right. So I think he's older than all of them, and maybe all of them put <laughs> together. I'm not, Chuck Grassley's old. I mean, I yeah. saw Chuck Grassley on Capitol Hill a couple of months ago. He, um, he looks old. Uh, he doesn't look yeah. like you, Kenny. I got to tell you. <laughs> or you. Listen, Nancy Pelosi's 80. Well, you and I look fabulous. You know, yeah, we you do. Yes, we, we do. Look, we look good. Yeah, that we. <laughs> Nancy we, Pelosi. We think so. She's 80 years old. He's got to be. How old is he? He's got to be in his mid 80s. Yes. Yeah. Which, which I, I, I argues, don't know. He just looks old. Yeah. Uh, which argues for let's not go there. Term limits. But that's all another conversation. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, I know that I am not as physically strong at uh, 59 as I was at 25. I got that. Uh, and I don't, ex and I expect I will be somewhat physically weaker when I'm 80. And I don't think I'm going to be probably as mentally sharp as I am at this moment now. Should someone who is less sharp 
we know uh, intellectually and 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 uh, cognitively run the most you know uh, uh, important powerful country in the world. Uh, I mean, agreed, agreed. Term limits. Listen, let's just have age limits. We've got listen. an age minimum. You got to be thirty-five. Why? Why shouldn't you? You know, like uh, a like a corporate trustee have to just stop when you're seventy. Listen, and and you could argue that across Congress. You could also argue that in the White House. You know, we're gonna we're about to elect somebody who's seventy-eight. 78 or or yeah 78 years old i think he'll be on election day right yeah. and and there's talk listen everybody's talking about it at some point like you just said you start to diminish whatever capacities now whether or not you want to argue he is or he isn't either one of them by the way either um, one of them either one of them by the way and so it does argue for uh for an age limit i would think i, I you know i would really think it does but i mean does it make sense to anybody to have someone who can can no longer drive at night uh, be serving as the president of the United States? I mean, come uh, on. Uh, I, I agree. I agree. We got to talk about Wall Street. Even though markets have pulled back a little bit in the past few days, uh, the yeah. Dow is still 28,000, almost 500. NASDAQ is 11,900, almost 12,000. What's going on with markets? I mean, they don't seem scared. As Biden advances in the polls, markets aren't seeming scared. Uh, markets are not seeming scared. But I'll tell you what I do sense is that, you know, last week, or the, the couple of the weeks leading up to when we saw the market rally, I think the market was deciding that Trump was out, it was going to be a Biden win, it was going to be a Biden uh, wave, and the market was trying to get itself okay with that. But recently, I think what's happened is that tone is starting to change a little bit. There's, a, there's once again a question. So the market, when it becomes unclear, the market, the path of least resistance is a little bit lower as money consolidates, investors rethink it, and so I think that's what's happening. In the end, I think, though, that it is still going to be a Biden win. Now, whether or not it's a wave or a tsunami, how you might call it, um, I, I do think it's going to be a Biden win. And I think that's why you're going to see the market churn until, until there's clarity, right? And we hope there's clarity sooner rather than later. Okay, so I read Greg Valliere this morning about this, and Biden's been kept picking up a lot of money from Wall Street yeah. and and a lot more than Trump, which is yeah. which is again strange if you're an investor as you and I are, and have been doing this as long as you and I have. And uh, Valliere said he thinks Wall Street's missing the point. He thinks Wall Street's looking forward to the next two trillion in stimulus that it looks like we'll get when he gets in. But you get a year out, or you get into 2022, and those tax cuts come in, and Wall Street's going to be very unhappy. The economy's very unhappy, and it's and the Fed isn't going to be able to do much about it. Uh, understood. But like you just said, it's going to be two years. So they're going to get a stimulus package in January. If Biden wins and they sweep, there's going to be an even bigger stimulus package than Pelosi, you know, is screaming about, in my opinion. And so the markets will surge on that stimulus. But you're right. But if you buy, if you're buying stocks now because the market's going to surge, if you have two years to wait before the other stuff hits the tape, then you've got time to kind of plan that. So yes, I think the initial reaction if Biden wins and that stimulus plan comes in, because I think that's the role, that's the position that Nancy Pelosi's taking, right? She's trying to look like she's negotiating, but I think in the end, she doesn't really want to let it happen before the election because she doesn't want to hand that to Trump. But right. I think she's playing a risky game because there is there is a shot, as little as it may be. If Trump wins, she's going to be in a worse position. Um, but if Biden wins, she'll be in a better position. I think that's the and I think that's what the market's waiting for because I do think the market will rally uh, on the fiscal stimulus. It'll I think the first reaction is it'll 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 get hit, 
because of the tax cuts. But once they start talking about massive amounts of stimulus, then the market will rally again. Stocks are expensive here, though, aren't they? I mean, stocks aren't cheap. No, stocks are not cheap, but rates are zero. So where else are you going to go? Here we have that Tina problem, right? There's no alternative. Uh, but you get people, I get people, you must get them too, saying, you know, Kenny, I've got uh, $5 million in cash. I just sold a house. You're telling me to buy stocks with that money today? Right. But I, you can buy stocks with that money today. But again, it's it's what stocks you're going to buy. Are you going to go out and buy Tesla and Amazon? Not necessarily. But you can certainly buy stocks. You can buy value stocks. You can buy nice dividend paying stocks. You can create a portfolio that you know will stand the test of time. Doesn't also mean you take the five million dollars and you jump all in and, and you and you invest it all in one day. You don't do that either. You, as you know, you feed it in over time and you take advantage of the moves in the market and you look for where the opportunities are. I think there's certainly uh, a place to have a, a stock portfolio for sure. Um, it's just a matter of what that stock portfolio looks like. What do you make about this uh, tech is dead, we need to rotate into value stocks now? Goldman uh, Sachs talking about this this week. And and what value stocks are you are you going to go into? Uh, I, first of all, I think it's baloney. Tech is not dead. Now, so do I. Amen. Okay. Good for okay. you. How could tech be dead? We're entering the so 5G. Stupid. I couldn't believe it. And it's changing 100%. the world every day. Tech. Now, listen, you may, you may be able to make the argument for the FANG stocks and saying, Maybe those are no, all the No, the bank stocks aren't dead either. They're, they're okay. expensive. They're, they're expensive, but they're not but dead. I agree with you, but there are also plenty of other places in when you talk about tech. Tech is not just those five names. Tech is such a big industry. There are certainly plenty of places to put money into tech. So, no, I don't agree with Goldman. I don't think tech is dead uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I do think that, you know, there is, as we move into this, uh, into the new year, this new president or potentially new, new administration, there is places where you need to put money away in value, right, in dividend-yielding stocks, ones that are boring, they're not sexy, they could be consumer staple names, they could be some industrial names. Not It's not Tesla, and it's not, uh, it's not Apple or Amazon, but they are safe, high-quality, big Americana blue-chip names that will provide a steady income, it will provide some shelter in the storm, and I think that's exactly when, when, a, when a client like that comes to you or me, that's exactly the conversation. Yeah, I think it has to be the conversation. You know, I, I told Reuters, I guess, uh, yesterday that uh, I didn't know I didn't think tech was dead. But I thought that the value stocks, a lot of the value stocks were catching a bid. And they've been we've been waiting a long time for them to catch a bid. And with all that money out there, it makes sense that it has to go somewhere. Right. But when you look at those, Kenny, let's let's I mean, you know, you look at some of the names, like you say, well, you look at consumer staples and you look at the traditional industrials and here and there. But you look at a Procter & Gamble or a Pepsi-Cola or some of these more traditional names, they've had the bid. Even, you know, you look at some of the names that were beaten down over COVID, like FedEx and Disney, those things have caught a bid back. Uh, Pepsi's done very well. So where, where in the value spectrum would you go? I would go, I, listen, you hit, you, hit, you hit a bunch of those names, they're very good. I like, I have to tell you, I like energy. I know everyone's screaming about it. Oh, my God. I like energy. I don't think this whole story, I think next year, I, when this economy comes back, I think demand for oil is going to go up. I think demand for energy is going to go up. I don't necessarily think that oil is going to $70 a barrel, but I think it's certainly somewhere in the $50 range. And, for, and from there, I think there's opportunity in some of the big energy names. I also like the consumer staple names. Listen, they're boring, right? Big Americana names. They're boring, yet 
they do offer value. They do offer stability. Not everything. Maybe, maybe some healthcare. Healthcare. Well, I would be careful in healthcare just because you don't really know what's going to happen. Now, if Trump, if Biden gets in, yeah, then I'd say there's opportunity in healthcare. If Trump gets in, it's still unsure because what what's going to happen to healthcare? I think that's I think it's a little unclear. Um, but if Biden gets in, yes, I'd say healthcare. There's opportunity. Isn't that weird? I mean, when when did you think you'd ever say on Wall Street? This is not a political comment, ladies and gentlemen. When on Wall Street did you ever think to say that health care would do worse under a Republican than it would under a Democrat? I know, right? When you never you say, say that. No, you but, never say that. No, and I'm not necessarily sure that it's going to, in the end, do do worse. But there's so much uncertainty around it right now that it's causing a lot of angst and anxiety under under Trump, under uh, Biden. I think it's less, it's more clear, and so therefore I think yes, there would be opportunity. But look, it should be, it should be, healthcare should have a part. In your in your portfolio, anyway, it just depends on how big you want it to be. It's going to depend on what the future looks like, and that's a conversation that clients will have with you, with me, with other asset managers, wealth managers. Give me give me your final thoughts here on what Fred and Ethel should be thinking about coming into the last quarter of 2020. So Please. I don't I don't think Fred and Ethel should be nervous about there's going to be some volatility. The VIX futures are still telling us there's going to be expect volatility through December, which tells you once again that the market's considering a contested election, right? So you shouldn't get nervous about that. What you should understand is that you should take advantage, right? You should take advantage. You should yeah. be patient. Don't go chasing things. I think patience is going to work on your side. Patience is a virtue. Stocks, I think, will come to you because I do think in a Biden win, you're going to see uh, you, the first reaction, I think, is going to be, uh, uh, you know, a down reaction. Could be swift. Could be a 5 or 7 percent reaction, depending on how big of a win the Democrats take, right? If it's a tsunami the way your, your next guest is going to talk about, then I think there's a bigger correction. If it's not so much a tsunami, then, you know, maybe there's less so. But I do think you're going to see a correction. And I think with that, you should take advantage. But you need to be patient. Kenny Polcari is managing partner of Case Capital Advisors, chief market strategist at Slatestone Wealth, and a managing director at Campfire Capital, an investment bank. He has been on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as an institutional broker since God pants. He, he, he and God were friends when they were much younger. <laughs> Over 38 years of experience, he started in the uh, early, uh, right around the early 80s on the floor of the Stock yeah. Exchange. So uh, when we want to find out what's going on from insiders, we go to the uh, Pros Pro. My friend Kenny Polcari, thanks for being on the forecast. Thanks, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Pleasure's ours, Kenny. When we come back, Dan Mahaffey going to explain what happened in those town halls and what he's focused on for the rest of this week. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on this week's forecast. We'd like to invite you to follow Michael on Twitter and LinkedIn. On his social media feed, you'll find links to all of Michael's media appearances, articles he's been quoted in in such newspapers as the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, and of course, the forecast. Additionally, Michael shares some of the articles we are reading at Far Miller in Washington every morning that we feel have bearing on the investing landscape. That's Michael underscore K underscore Far on Twitter and Michael Far on LinkedIn. And now, back to Michael and the forecast. Welcome back to the forecast. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. We are now joined by our great friend, Dan Mahaffey, who is the senior political analyst on the forecast. 
probably one of his proudest achievements, uh, I'm sure, on his resume ever uh, that he's ever done for a very accomplished guy who directs policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress uh, and is one of the smartest guys in Washington's insiders we get to talk to. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me. And I just want to let you know, too, that my mom has the Farcast political analyst certificate prominently displayed on the fridge at home. Do you know we have uh, we had that uh, we had that printed out on uh, some of the best copy paper? Well, on the copy paper, well, on on the available copy paper we had at the time, uh, and and I signed it with the very best pen with with a pen, well, with the bic actually in the copy room, but 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 I signed it. So there you it, go. It was that bic that still had the chain from the bank uh, attached to it, right? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny exactly the uh, origins of that particular big pen. Dan, we had two town halls instead of a debate last right. night. Uh, we had the president talking to Savannah Guthrie on NBC. We had the vice president talking to George Stephanopoulos on ABC. I kind of switched back and forth to listen to both. I did not learn a lot. How about you? I don't think anyone learned a lot. I don't think it swung the needle all that much. It was just another reminder of the two very different universes that each candidate seems to be in and the very distinct differences in how they're running their campaign and approaching these concerns like the coronavirus, the state of the economy, and those factors. For someone switching back and forth between the channels, it, it could it was a very interesting contrast. And and I have to say it's interesting too how the again the the White House wanting to make Biden appear uh, senile or unable to stand up to the challenge, but that didn't happen. Uh, you know, no one made significant news either way in last night's uh, town halls. And when you're the front runner, that's good news. And when you're coming in from behind and trying to close that gap, that's bad news. Yeah. Uh, Dan, I have a question uh, from my generation to your generation. Uh, folks, Dan, you, what are you, 33? Yes. 33. Uh, so when I watched the president with Savannah Guthrie, I was very uh, struck very differently than when I watched the president with Chris Wallace. Uh, and this is probably the way I was, you know, in my, my generation. But uh, I, I was certainly taught you don't fight with girls. You, you'd never, I mean, you, you, you don't do that. You're much more polite with a lady than you would ever be. I mean, you're polite with everybody, but, but you're especially polite with women and ladies. And I, I felt that the president probably had a tougher time with Savannah Guthrie than he would have had with Chris Wallace. Now, I, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry if, if, if my sense towards uh, uh, being polite um, somehow uh, uh, makes me too far out of step uh, today, but did you see that? Did that strike your generation or no? Well, I think our generation sees it, and we see it in the way the president deals with all kinds of people, be it uh, women, be it the people who work for him. Ac across the board, you just see the difference in presidential uh, temperament. But look, for the president, to get back to the election, where the president needs to shore up his support among seniors 
who saw his last debate performance as uh, indecorous and rude. Uh, you have the, uh, you know, concerns among female voters. Look, going off and, and being rude or seeming hostile to the host is not going to help with those electoral segments. But then again, for the president and his base, he needs to define it as a struggle. He needs to have an enemy. And Savannah Guthrie wasn't so much a, a, a woman or gentle lady or reporter. She is the enemy from the fake news, NBC, press, media. You know, that's the confrontation. He oh, made. hey, she went after him last night. I mean, she really, I mean, she didn't pull punches. She, I thought she was very tough, though I've been looking at social media this morning who said that she was, I mean, the, the, the uh, Trump supporters said that she did an awful job, that she was belligerent, that she attacked him, that she brought up uh, inane issues like QAnon, uh, that is just a stupid thing to have had any conversation about whatsoever. Yeah, a, a stupid thing that the FBI says is a potential domestic terrorist organization. But, you know, that's the, you know, the QAnon thing and the, and the white supremacy, it, it just... Again, it's the cloud that follows him that he can't can't seem to get away from. Because which he, he denounced though last night. He denounced he did denounce the white, the white supremacy, supremacy but the, very the, clearly. The, yeah, for QAnon, for him to say that he doesn't know about it when it's when again the FBI has written threat assessments on this group and he's corresponded with its adherents on Twitter uh, is either willful, willful ignorance or the or the president's been misbriefed on the nature of this QAnon group. Well, he knew enough to say that they that they were they were against uh, child pornography, uh, certainly, and the sexual exploitation of children, and he supported that. So he knew something about them. I mean, it wasn't that he never heard Correct. of it. Correct, but again, it you know, can he simply say that he he does not think that the Democratic National Committee is running a cabal of pedophilia uh, is is just still too hard for him to say to to push away the. The nonsensical, but look, it, it does. The leopard's not going to change his spots. I don't think many voters have. Uh, the question now becomes the, the math, both dollars and votes. Now, as we have uh, just 18 days to go, the dollars have been rolling into Joe Biden's camp, and a lot of them from Wall Street too. Tell us, uh, Dan. Uh, we've got, we've seen uh, Vice President Biden take a little bit of a further lead in the polls, which people say, I don't know if I can believe him, because this is sort of where Hillary was four years ago. Um, Dan, what's the math for a Donald Trump win? I have people telling me, I'm back in Florida, Dan, and I have people, my Trump friends, uh, and my, I have Biden friends and Trump friends. Uh, my Trump friends are saying, you know, I know the polls are off, but I have this feeling, I just have a feeling Donald Trump's going to win. What's the math? Can Donald Trump win at this point? What, th what would it take? Donald Trump can win, and what would have to happen is that where we see new voters coming in, uh, white rural voters, white voters without a college degree— that somehow they had not voted in past elections, and we see them come out in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Florida to a certain extent, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio. You have those states where people have not voted. Uh, you know, they're generally rural, they're white, like I said, not a college degree. They haven't voted in the past. Uh, they come out in this election because they're inspired by Trump. And they come out in those key states in a way that makes up for the loss that he's seen in seniors and suburban college-educated voters. They have to figure out a way for there to be enough rural voters or otherwise, you know, conservative non-previous non-voters to make up that gap. 
And then he has to figure out again how to repeat that I, because I very I see very little chance of him winning the popular vote. So it would still be an election where he wins in the electoral college but loses the popular vote. But that's that's the math they have to figure out. And and the challenge for Trump there is unlike Hillary, Biden is polling above 50% generally. Even when Hillary had a strong lead, she was in the high 40s. Trump still seems to be stuck in the low 40s. Biden now in the high 50s. It's just a much larger gap to overcome. And then you have to ask the questions, you know, uh, okay, there's there's no Comey, there's no Hillary. Are, are the Russians not using their good material anymore? All those questions you have to ask uh, that are needed for him to close this gap. All right. Well, we're watching and we're going to wait, be waiting to hear from you. And if you have any updates, if anything happens now over these next couple of weeks, Dan, we're going to come back to you live, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have election updates with Dan Mahaffey. Uh, any big issue that comes up, we're going to bring it to you. We'll bring Dan's commentary to you. We want to make sure that you are fully informed on Wall Street. Washington and the world, as we always do here on the Farcast. Let's shift for a second now, Dan. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett has finished her testimony to uh, uh, the Senate. Please tell us what you made of that, her chances, and what does this mean for this election? Michael, I can't answer that question because it may come up in front of other uh, things. <laughs> no, it, it was, a, it was a, you know, nothing came through that was groundbreaking. There's no... Uh, aha moment. The Republicans have the votes. She she showed herself to be a capable jurist. There's going to be questions about this, but look, elections have complicated uh, have consequences. Democrats are seeing that now. Look, the they're going to get this through. It's going to be pushed through. She's going to be on the Supreme Court. We just have to see what this means in terms of the the escalation and what Democrats do. It, there, it's it's going to be complicated to see the court takes look, but there was no there was no unforced errors. It was it was hardly the the Kavanaugh nomination in in how smoothly it went. But look, we got no clear answers from her either, nor did I expect to. She's forty eight years old. The uh, average age of the uh, Republican side of the court is has really fallen in the past couple of years here. These folks can be on there for what? Well, if, if follow uh, Justice Ginsburg, they're there for another, you know, 30 years. Uh, she that, could be that, anyway, that 35 years. And, and the court and the good Lord, and I hope, again, Justices Alito and uh, Thomas have good health. But if there's a Biden presidency, you know, they're— they're no spring chickens either. So the, the the Supreme Court, you can make your plan, you know, make your plans, but God will laugh. Stacking the court, does uh, that uh, people are asking uh, Joe Biden about? He didn't answer it last night, though he he said he wasn't didn't like the idea, but he didn't say he wouldn't do it. Well, he doesn't like the idea. And look, Biden's a Biden's like a lot of us who say every time we've gone to this. Look, the court has presidents from Roosevelt to Lincoln. They've changed the size of the court how you do it and how you pursue those political norms. And we've seen ways that the courts have, have adapted and changed with the time. So it's it's very complicated. But as I have a colleague, Michael, who points out in our Friday newsletter, when do you stop? Do you add four? Do you add six? Does the next person, it, it becomes sort of a, you know, an escalation dominance where he half joked that, you know, all of us in 2040 on our 18th birthday will receive our Supreme Court nomination because, <laughs> you know, we'll just have to keep figuring out how to add more people 
to it. So, you know, that's the, you know, where do you end with that? And who are the cooler heads that can prevail once we perhaps get through this election? Final quick answer, Dan. We're out of time. I'm sorry. Uh, still a uh, still a Biden uh, presidency, do you predict? And are you still calling for the Senate and the House? A blue wave is what you see or no? I'm still seeing the blue wave. Look, we'll have to look at the numbers as they come in over the coming weeks. If there is that tightening we've expected, looking at the but still the numbers are in Biden's favor right now. Dan Mahaffey manages the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress Policy Program, serves as corporate secretary to their board, also on the board of the Dr. Scholl Foundation, and uh, most important is the senior political analyst on the Farcast. We're going to come back with Daryl Owen to discuss the Amy Coney Barrett uh, nomination, what that means for the court, what the constitutional implications are, and with a really conservative court, what's that going to mean for Wall Street? We'll be back. Please stay with us. The forecast is sponsored in part by Positano Restaurante in Bethesda, Maryland, 4940 Fairmont Avenue. Positano Restaurant, great Italian food. And now, back to the show, and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. Thanks so much for being with us again this week. We really do appreciate a terrific segment to start with, with my friend Kenny Polcari, and then, of course, Dan Mahaffey, trying to explain what's going on in Washington and how this election is going to shake out, what the implications are going to be for Wall Street. And as we try to piece all of these together for you every week, our great listeners, as we go from Wall Street to Washington and then cover the world, we're going to focus on more in the world of Washington with my great friend, Daryl Owen. Daryl is a nationally recognized energy policy expert. He spent 12 years in the U.S. Senate, served as chief of staff for U.S. Senator Bennett Johnson of Louisiana. He was staff director of the Senate Committee on Energy and National Resources. He's a lawyer, and I'm going to tell you, one of the brightest guys I know, and also one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet in the city of Washington. If you want to talk to an insider's insider who gets it, call my friend Daryl Owen. Hey, Daryl, welcome back to the Farcast. Always a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you, and it is wonderful for our listeners who always learn so much. Amy Coney Barrett is uh, the nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States. She's finished her uh, hearings. What do you make of this nomination? What do you, how do you feel about her as a candidate? And what do you think strategically about this move by the Republicans to move forward with this nomination and I presume confirmation prior to the election. Uh, as to how I feel about her, she is extremely bright. Yes. Uh, more so even than Trump's first two appointments to the Supreme Court. She is in the way that judicial nominees have become more ideological than most of her predecessors. Uh, the court what do you all mean by that? I mean, ideological than her predecessors. What do you mean? When uh, when Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell combined to eliminate the filibuster for judicial nominees, 
they enabled a majority to ram through a, an appointment of a judge uh, that was much more extremist in their views than in past years. I see. Previously, because you had to get 60 votes to get anyone through the process, you had much more moderate nominees. Yeah. Coney Barrett is extremely bright, but she is far more conservative than would typically have been a, a Supreme Court nominee um, in past generations. More conservative than Scalia? More ideological, I would say, than Scalia. What's the difference when you say ideological and we're talking about conservative, I'm thinking dogma or agenda? Well, ideological tends to be a little bit more rigid, a little bit more dogmatic, as you say. Right. Conservative is, in, in my way of thinking at least, um, much more deliberative. He, he, they would often come down on the same side of the line, but they might get there different ways. She might do it as a default. He might do it as a reasoned decision. I see. So does this, how, how well, now do you, do you have any reason to think she won't be confirmed? She'll be confirmed. She'll be confirmed. This is done, isn't it? Okay. In all likelihood, she'll be confirmed before the election, which is a curious choice, Michael. Well, uh, let's, let's go there and then tell me if it actually, how it's going to change the ethos of the court. Mitch McConnell has done a, a very good job of avoiding binary decisions for his Republican senators. If you go back and look at the way he handled the impeachment trial, it was very quick, there was no testimony, they attacked the process, they voted and they moved on. He never put his members in a situation where they had to choose between Trump and moderates. Uh, he's done the same thing on the stimulus package right now. That's one reason you're not seeing him embrace stimulus. He doesn't want his members to have to choose between taking care of people who need help and more deficit spending, which is going to get them in trouble. This is clearly a binary decision. You're either for her or you're against her. And I believe it is going to hurt a number of the uh, Republican senators who are up for re-election. It may help others. Uh, it's just a, it's a very intriguing decision uh, to me for uh, McConnell to have this happen before the election. Does this help the president in any way to get this done before the election? You know, probably not much. Uh, I initially thought it would less because of the excitement of the evangelicals and the social conservatives um, than it is it was going to change the subject. Trump desperately needed to get the subject away from COVID-19. Well, as soon as the nomination uh, went forward to the Senate, two things happened. First was the debate. Second, Trump came down with COVID. Yep. So in terms of changing the subject, um, the nomination really did not accomplish much. What it has done is further energize an already dramatically uh, uh, energized Democratic Party. Money is coming in over the transom for these guys, both candidates and causes. Uh, and it's, it's, it's money on a scale that I've never seen before. You know, Daryl, I was talking with a very experienced, very large Republican fundraiser yesterday uh, who has raised a lot of money for Trump over the years and indeed this year. And I, and I asked him and I said, you know, Joe, uh, the old rule in Washington is really if somebody has a huge money margin, that's the guy you go with. 
That's the one who's gonna typically get elected, the one with the most money. Uh, they can buy more ad time. They can get in your face more. They can, they're in your head more. Is that changed? Uh, he, he said, no, no, it, he didn't think it had entirely changed, but he said, as so many of my Republican friends are saying to me, Daryl, you know, I understand what the polls say, but I just have a feeling that Trump's going to get reelected. What do you make of, so first tell me what, if the money rule still applies, and two, beyond this feeling, is, is there a path, a mathematical path to uh, Donald Trump getting reelected at this point, given the differences you see? In terms of the money, uh, I think it is more at this point an indication of uh, passion and determination than ah. it is likely to affect the outcome. You can only spend so much money effectively. The, okay. the uh, Senate candidate in South Carolina raised $57 million in the third quarter. Wow. He can't possibly expend that much money effectively. You've right. also got so much early voting. You've got so many people whose minds are already made up. So I, I, I don't think it affects the outcome as much as it demonstrates what the outcome is likely to be. Uh, so are you, I've, I've heard people predicting not a blue wave, but a blue tsunami. Where do you fall on that? Well, the Democrats always win in October. Uh, their track record is not quite as good in November. Uh, there was going to be a blue wave in uh, the uh, midterm elections of 2018. Not quite. It was significant, right. but it certainly wasn't historic. Um, I, I think it is, it is certainly possible, but the fact that it's being talked about so much almost uh, uh, undercuts the notion of it happening. In terms of having the feeling, yes, somebody's got a little PTSD from 2016. You've got pundits who and, and press people who don't want to be proved wrong again. You've got Democrats who don't want to uh, uh, promote complacency. You've got Republicans who don't want to be fatalistic. And so everybody's sort of hedging their bets because we missed the, the, the numbers uh, only by a little bit. Yes. Numbers in 2016. This time, the, the, the numbers are different. They're larger. The internal numbers are different. Um, the constituencies are different. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton, who theoretically is the mastermind of this grand QAnon strategy, which has infiltrated the entire federal government, couldn't organize a campaign trip to Wisconsin four years ago. Yes. And she lost by 23,000 votes there. Difference this time and last time. No third party candidates this time to speak of. They got 7% of the vote previously. Only 53% of Bernie's voters voted for Hillary Clinton last time. That's Is that right? Voted. Only 53%, really? The rest either stayed home, voted for Donald Trump, or voted for a third party candidate. On the day of the election, 20% of the electorate disliked both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Trump carried those people by a very large margin. Which yep. brings to mind the old May West line, when confronted with two evils, I always choose the one I haven't tried before. <laughs> this time, I love May West lines. May West this, was this the best. Time, this time, Biden's numbers are actually positive. His positives have gone up uh, during yeah. the uh, since the uh, uh, convention. 
And his favorability is higher than his unfavorability. Among those who don't like either candidate, and there are still some, Biden carries those pretty convincingly. He's got an edge among the military. He's got an edge among seniors who are notorious for turning out in great numbers. He is just romping in the suburbs. So the fundamentals are different. And, and I, don't, I don't quite go with the feeling notion. I'm much more of a numbers man. And the numbers point overwhelmingly to a Biden victory. That, uh, okay, I want to come back to that, uh, Daryl, and I've got to keep track of our time here. How does this, I want to go back to Amy Coney Barrett for a second. How does this change the court? Does this, will she fall in line and uphold the Constitution according to the letter of the law as she sees it, or does this really change outcomes uh, prospectively? Both. Both. Uh, both. I mean, I, I, I think she is an honorable person. She is, as I said earlier, extremely intelligent. Uh, and I believe that she will absolutely uphold the Constitution as she interprets it. What, what she does is ever so slightly change the balance of the court. Uh, unless she does what John Roberts did, which in my mind is sort of a, a half step towards the center, then suddenly you've got five conservative judges, John Roberts, and three more liberal judges, yeah. justices. And I think in that respect, she, she does potentially change the dynamic of the court. Does Biden stack it if he gets in? Does he, does he add three more? You know, he was against it when he was in the Senate. Uh, this whole uh, game that he's playing with refusing to answer that question strikes me as a little bit odd sort of too cute by half, uh, in order to, in, in my estimation, in order to stack the court, you're going to have to have legislation. In order to pass that legislation, you're going to have to survive the filibuster, or you're going to have to change the filibuster rules. And to change the filibuster rules is a fundamental reworking of the United States Senate, and it would be extremely harmful to this country. And I just don't think Biden would go there. I think there are other institutional Democratic senators who would be reluctant to go there. So I tend to think he does not stack the court in that way. So as we now look at, um, I'm going to move on and, and get you back because I think your, your information you're sharing with us about the past election, about the statistics on this election that's coming up, that is, that is at hand, is fascinating. Wall Street seems not to be too bothered by a potential Biden presidency. And my interpretation of that, Daryl, is that we get Democrats, if they have the blue wave, we're going to have a big stimulus package. Uh, Wall Street's going to like that. So Wall Street is now just saying, fine, give us a ton of money, uh, $2.5 trillion, $3 trillion, whatever Nancy wants, Nancy gets. Uh, so. Um, the near term uh, could be very bubbly, uh, could be a big party. Could we see markets rally 10% from here? Absolutely we could. Could it, could it be 15%? Sure, it could be. And then what is the tough question? And then what is the tough question? Because you get 12 months or uh, 18 months out, and you still have a relatively weak economy, 
and you have a uh, you have the trifecta of Democrats among the three branches uh, of government who are looking at a midterm election coming up and typically one or the other House or Senate falls uh, the other way in those midterms and particularly if the economy hasn't improved. Then do they start getting itchy and say, we've got to do these tax hikes because we have to fit through, get through these promises we've made? Because in a, in a weak economic environment, these tax hikes, even on the margin, trickle down. People, people forget that tax hikes trickle down. And it's that middle class consumer that is the backbone of the US economy. So I'm sorry for the long, long, long question there. Do you think I'm I'm do you think I'm right about the way Wall Street's reacting? Uh, and uh, how do you think the Democrats will behave once they get in? Well, now I know who stole that page out of my, my speech notes. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Wow. I think I think one reason Wall Street feels so comfortable, you're absolutely right. There is going to be a massive stimulus on the scale of which the scale of which we've not seen even recently. No, uh, yeah. I think it will be pushing $3 trillion by the time that it's done. I think it and will be too. At the same time, Donald Trump has remade, will remade not just the Supreme Court, but the, the entire U.S. judiciary. More than a third of the judges at the district court level and the appeals court level will be Trump judges. So you're going to have a very conservative, business-friendly judiciary to review a lot of this stuff. I think the Democrats will make the mistake that everybody always makes when they win. And that is they're going to think that they really liked all those programs that we were for. They really that they've got a mandate. They've got a mandate from the people, right? Absolutely. It's not just that they hated the other guys. They loved us and they loved our ideas. So let's go put them into to, to practice. In this case, they're going to be so focused on the economy on the suffering that's going on out there that uh, I think they'll they'll do infrastructure, they'll do the sort of stimulus package that Pelosi has, has moved through the House. I think that will be their principal initiative. I, I agree with you, they've got to be very, very careful about raising taxes in the middle of a recession. And I think they're less likely to raise corporate taxes than some of their rhetoric would suggest. Where they're going to go is after wealthy individuals. They're going to hit inheritance tax. There may be a new um, marginal tax rate. They're going to go after capital gains. They're going to go after step up in basis. They're, they're going to hit the, the ultra rich as best they can. They're not going to do a wealth tax. That's nonsense. Those, those just don't work. But there are a lot of ways that they can get money from very wealthy people. Now that's more of a political statement than it is an economic, uh, uh, of economic significance. But I, I do think that they're likely to go there. More so I'm than- it, it trickles down though. I mean, we've seen the changes at the different times in history when the capital gains tax has been lowered, the amount of economic activity that actually picks up is remarkable. So I, I, I understand it's politically convenient, but I'm going to tell you that economically, this is not a political comment, economically, it is not a good thing. Uh, and here we have become much more isolated as an economic island unto ourselves with 
probably not very good international relations. I mean, we seem to have one-on-one -on -one relations all the way around the world right now, whether it's, you know, whether we're one-on-one -on -one with uh, Germany or the UK or Russia or China, but this idea of a consortium or uh, going through the UN before we do anything on a security council measure or the use of tariffs seems to me that we just have one-on-one -on -one conversations and there's no multilateral talking anymore among uh, the other leading, particularly economic leading countries of the world. All of this stuff worries me, Daryl. I quite agree. I quite agree. I don't know anyone who seriously questions the notion of Trump taking on China. I think we operated for years sharing human capital, financial capital, technology, intellectual property, all under this misguided notion that if we get them all an iPhone, they're going to all be Democrats. They're going to all be just like us. They're going to Democrats in the small right. way. That hasn't worked. It's an authoritarian government. It's increasingly nationalistic. It's increasingly militaristic. And they're, they're exerting themselves through massive government support for technology. We're going to have to come up with a counter to that. But yes. when Trump went after him, he sort of started from the, the buy more stuff period. Well, that's, that's easy. You just buy more stuff. Then Lighthizer gets involved. Lighthizer says, you got to play by the rules. Well, that's a lot tougher because they, they don't like to change their rules. Then the debate shifted over to, you're too big for your britches. Yes. That, is, that part of it is not going to go away. When Trump went after him, he sort of started at the back end of the process with tariffs. That's where you end up. If everything goes badly, you wind up with tariffs. He started there and he started as a single country as opposed to a multilateral initiative, which he could have put together very, uh, very easily in my judgment. So I totally agree with you. The fact that, that we took them on by ourselves, uh, sort of from the back end of the process, undercut what could have otherwise been a very meaningful uh, uh, change in our relationship. Ladies and gentlemen, we are just, I'm so sad about this, but we are not only out of time, we are over time. My friend, Daryl Owen, is a partner with the firm of Owen, Evans, and Ingalls. It's a government relations firm, strategic consulting in Washington, D.C. Daryl is a pro's pro. I want to tell you something. If you, if you have any issue that you need to get through Washington, D.C., that even smells like energy, and you don't call Daryl Owen after you've listened to him today, you're not thinking. Uh, Daryl Owen is the man in D.C. Uh, he's the man to see. We ought to make a movie about that, Daryl. You know, uh, my father would have enjoyed that and my mother would have believed it. <laughs> I like that. You know, uh, I, I got to tell you, I'm just going to add, uh, uh, they asked Marky, Rocky Marciano, whose record was better than any any pro boxer we've, we've ever had. And they asked Marciano when, when uh, Muhammad Ali was in his heyday, they said, Rocky, you could have beat him, couldn't you? And he said, well, actually, you know, modesty prevents me from saying yes, but honesty prevents me from saying no. <laughs> <laughs> which, which you might go with, you know, uh, you, can, you can start with all shucks, but yeah, I'm probably the right guy, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll work that in. You work that in. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another forecast this week. Uh, we hope you'll be back with us next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please share us on your social media. And thanks for the notes that we have been getting. They've been terrific uh, from all over the country and indeed all over the world. Really exciting to hear from listeners in Asia and India. Uh, that was really cool last week. Thanks so much. I'm Michael Farr. We'll be back next week. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of the Farcast. A special thanks to Michael's guests, Kenny Polkari, Dan Mahaffey, and Daryl Owen. And thanks to our underwriters, including Positano Restaurant of Bethesda, Maryland. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. Please subscribe and don't miss a minute. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like us to cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index fund, manager, or strategy. The information statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature and not intended to be and should not be construed as a provision of investment advice by Farm Miller & Washington or any firm any of our guests may represent. And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and, and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and, and your investment goals. We hope you join us again next week. Go beyond the headlines every week with the forecast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.